Hi, it's Scott Hamilton with Rockfile Radio, and I'm, um, I'm just excited as, as I could be. My number one uh, list on people to have a chat with, Mr. Stephen Wilson. Welcome to South Florida. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Uh, you've come to South Florida a few times. Uh, we were here at the Miami show uh, when you had toasted lids. You forgot to put uh, sunscreen on your eyelids and had sunburn eyelids that night. Do we wear sunscreen this time around? No, I just stay inside. <laughs> I'm not really a sun person, as you can probably tell by my general pallid demeanor. You know, I, I, I enjoy looking out the window and seeing the sun shining, but I'm not the kind of person who can just lie in the sun like a lizard. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm a bit more careful than perhaps I was in those days, shall we say. Yeah. So you've been on tour... Um what has been the highlight so far? You've, you've hit many countries in many months. You're going to places I believe you haven't played before. How does it feel? It's true. We've been, to, um, we've been to Taiwan for the first time. We've been to New Zealand for the first time. We've been to India. Not my, not my first time, but the first time with this particular band. And they've all been, in their own way, they've all been uh, exhilarating, crazy. You know, it's always amazing to go somewhere where you've never been before and discover that there are people there that have been listening to your music sometimes for 20 years, you know, and they know, all the words. Uh, they know everything. And that kind of um, uh, look you see in their eyes when, they find, when you finally walk out on stage and they've been waiting for you for all, that's, there's nothing quite like that, you know. India is always fun because it's so different to the world that I live in, the world that you guys live in in America, the, the Indian, the whole kind of Indian culture is such a different planet in a good way. Like Japan is like that too, you know, it's just such a different kind of planet almost. And I love, I love going to those places. Um, so India was very exciting. We're going back to India next week to do two more shows, which is going to be, uh, going to be fun. And we've had some great shows going across America. You know, I mean, one of the things I'm really pleasantly surprised about this time is like we're almost two years now into the album cycle for, for the most recent full-length album. And traditionally, when you go out and you tour this late on in the, in the album cycle, you're struggling to sell tickets. Not this time. It's been amazing. I've, I think about 80% of the shows have sold out. And there seems to be as much enthusiasm, if not more... Then the first time I came out to play this music, which was way back in the beginning of last year. And, and I'm also hitting a lot of places, that they, the so-called secondary markets. Mm-hmm. In other words, I'm not just doing New York, L.A., Boston. In fact, I'm not doing them at all. I did do L.A., but I'm not doing New York. But, so I'm doing places like you know, Salt Lake City, Solano Beach, Kansas, wow. uh, you know, and, and, and three shows in Florida, which is ambitious. You know, most bands of my statue would just come and do one show in Florida, you know. So to do three shows in Florida was a gamble. Uh, you know what? Two of them have sold out, and the other one did very well too. So I'm I'm really pleased with the way it's gone. Um, the reaction has been great. I think the band is on fire uh, right now. You know, as you'd expect from a band that's been on the road for the last four or five weeks now, it's sounding great. Can't wait to hear it tonight. Yeah, me too. Last show. Yeah. Last show, yeah. Very excited. Uh, I've had some requests... Uh, Usually you put out a live video. Uh, is there going to be one for this tour? No. And I'll tell you why. Because I want people to come and see this show. One of the, one of the slight issues I had... Now, I say this, of course, with a caveat that I understand that not everybody can get to a show. But most people can. You know, it may be a little effort, but most people can get to a show. They might have to travel a little bit. 
You need to see the show. I mean, I, you know, I, I think one of the problems I have with this sort of whole DVD home viewing thing is you can't really encapsulate the, the totally immersive experience of being at a show. I also think there are far too many live DVDs coming out these days. You know, I, I, when I was growing up, you know, there weren't any, there was no such thing as a, you know, in the 80s, which wasn't so long ago. The whole, it was the whole kind of idea of being able to just buy a souvenir of a tour you saw and watch it at home didn't exist. No, you bought the T-shirt. You bought a T-shirt or, you know, or you... Program. Yeah, or, or whatever. And you couldn't take the show home and watch it on your TV. This is something that began to grow up through the late 80s, through the 90s. And, of course, now it's very common for... It seems to me that most bands release a live D- DVD from every album cycle. It's too much. And it's no surprise to discover that the, the market for live DVDs has basically fallen away. You can't sell them. You can't give them away. You know, people talk about CDs being difficult to sell. The live DVD market is, is almost impossible now. And I think when you compare the expense of filming a show with the return from releasing a show, it's expensive. To do it, to do it properly, you're talking about 12 cameras, editing, mixing, mastering, authoring the Blu-ray. It's a lot of work. It's really expensive. And honestly, I would rather people came to the show anyway. <laughs> Perfect answer. It's a very immersive thing. You know, when you, when you see the show and you hear, the, you know, the speakers in the back and the quadraphonic sound and the films and everything and the band on stage and the vibe in the audience, you can't, you can't capture that in a, in a live DVD. As a huge magic, uh, music fan who saw Pink Floyd, I saw him five times. Even in the big stadium, they had the surround sound. Is that going to be something that you're going to continue with? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, I, I don't think it, you know, I don't think it's something that, that's particularly specific to a particular size of venue. I think you can, right. you can make it work in, in, I mean, you're assuming that one day I will get to that level. Which is nice. <laughs> one could hope you would sell out stadiums at some point. Yeah, well, if I, get to the, if I get to the stage, listen, if I get to the stage where I can play stadiums, then that would assume I have the resources, financial and otherwise, to make things like that work. Um, and yes, it would mean more expenses, and it would mean probably more, you know, technical expertise. But I think it can be done, as those bands prove. You know, going to see you going to see Muse, you get that kind of you know surround thing as well. So those bands are playing stadiums and arenas. I, I'm sure it can be done. I use it slightly more aggressively than most people. Um, I haven't seen the Floyd show, but I have seen Roger's show, and he only tends to have occasional sound effects in the back. I, not actual music mix. Back he doesn't have music. I'm a little bit more aggressive with what I, I have vocals. I have keyboard parts. Um, the engineer can put anything that he's mixing to the back if he wants to. So, but you know, maybe those things become a little bit more problematic in bigger rooms. But I'm sure there's a way. There's always a way. And hopefully, we'll find out if you can tackle that problem. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to. It's a nice problem to have to be playing a stadium, isn't it? Well, and that leads to a great conversation about you are like the go-to guy now for remixing and remastering classic albums. As a, as a giant music fan that I am, you are not only a kid that gets the keys to the candy store of a Yes album or a Jethro Tull album. You get the mortar, you get the bricks, you get the carpets, you get all the pieces parts. What is it like when you break open that, here's the masters of this album you grew up with? What does it feel like to get in there and find surprises? Um, that's a complicated answer because it's actually very hard work and uh, the novelty wears off pretty quickly. 
I mean, I've done about 50 or 60 albums now. I've kind of stopped now, to be honest, because it was taking up too much time. There's still a lot of stuff that's going to come out that I did like in the last three, three or four years, but I've kind of stopped because it is so time-consuming. And I have to say that the novelty has kind of worn off. It's very hard work. Um, you're right that there is a kind of uh, a frisson of, of thrill, you know, about being able to deconstruct something that you know very intimately. Um, but then it becomes... Uh, listen, I'm not trying to say it's terrible work or anything. It's still fun, <laughs> but it's really hard work. And one of the things I'm very conscious of is when I'm remixing a classic album, whether it's a 70s album or an 80s album, or I've just done the, one of the last ones that was Tears for Fears, Seeds of Love, which was a very complex job. And one of the things I'm conscious of is the people who've been listening to those albums for sometimes decades, and since, you know, usually since their childhood, and not wanting to let them down in the sense that you are, in a sense, you are playing with people's childhoods. You're playing with people's memories. You're playing with people's own nostalgic attachment to certain things. Now, I can objectively say I've made something sound better. And I think I have. Not every time. But there are certain albums I think, yeah, that sounds better than the original mix. But that's a very subjective thing because the person who's been listening to that album for 20, 30, 40, 50 years has got such a strong bond with the way it sounded originally that what I do suddenly sounds wrong to them. But you provide all the different mixes for those people who might complain. Well, I try to... Listen, I mean, I'm only hired to do a job. I'm not in control of what goes on these releases. But I think some, sometimes people think I am. I'm not. I'm just hired by the artist or the manager or the record company to remix, and I give it to them. And then what they do with it is up to them. But what I try and always do is encourage them to include the original mix as part of the package. So you get a remastered version of the original mix, and you get my remix, which is unmastered. It's a flat transfer of my mix. And has all the dynamics that, that, that you know that are in there in the recording, and so that gives people everything. You know the new mix, the old mix, the surround sound mix, the bonus tracks, the outtakes. If there's any video material, those are the those are the packages I like the best. You know, real definitive. The Tull ones are great in that respect. The Yes ones are slightly more problematic because contractually we're not allowed to use the original mix. So the, the new mix has to be the one that goes on the CD. And I don't necessarily think that every time my mix was better, you know. So that's a, that's a contractual thing. But, but in all the other cases, it's like we present a complete, if you like, picture of that whole era of that particular band. All the tracks that were recorded during that period, new mixes, old mixes, surround mixes, bonus tracks, video. And I think that's kind of... That's the last word, really, in, in terms of physical releases of a lot of these albums. There's nowhere left to go now. Well, that's what I was going to ask. How does it feel to be your guy, the last guy who's probably going to touch these things? Yeah, I know. It's, it's sad in a way that, 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 you know, that there, is really, um, there is really a declining market for these physical editions. And one of the only things left for record companies to do, which is why I get so much work or I get offered so much work in this area, is because one of the only things left for the record companies to do or the artists to do is to present deluxe editions of albums and sell them to the same people that bought them 40 years ago or 30 years ago. I don't really think these things are, are selling to new young fans. I think they're selling to the same people that know the records intimately. 
which is kind of a double-edged sword. It's kind of nice in a way to be offering these people a new insight into something they already know and love. But at the same time, it's sad to think that we're kind of... It's kind of archaeology in a way. <laughs> and that, that, that we are... This is the kind of last word in what you can do with these, with these classic recordings. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe they will prevail and, and we'll see. But... Um, I don't know if that answers your question or not. I mean, listen, I have, a great, I have a great time doing it. I've learned a lot from doing it. I've remixed some of my favourite albums of all time. And, and that's obviously been amazing. And one of the greatest things about doing these is being able to meet, in, in many cases, meet some of the people behind the music. You know, I met some of my idols and, you know, people like Andy Partridge from XTC, Roland from, from Tears for Fears, Ian Anderson has been lovely to hang out with what you know really interesting guy so being able to hang out with some of these people has been has been in some respects been the the most fun part you know i talked to ian on the phone once he is a fascinating guy to sit down and talk to ian's lovely and ian ian uh, he's been lovely with me i hear stories that you know <laughs> if being in a band with him is not so easy but he's been absolutely lovely and he's and he's he's workaholic like me and i think we have a lot in common he he is he has an incredible work ethic he still works pretty much 365 days a year and, and um, con- complete control freak. And I understand that and I sympathize with that. If you're a control freak, it's very easy to, to upset people around you because you feel obliged to micromanage every aspect of what you do. And that, unfortunately, being in a band, and I know because I've also been through the process of being a band, being in a band, and come out the other end and realise that really I need to be a solo artist because I can't be in a band. Now, he managed to be in a band for a lot longer than I did, and he upset a lot of people along the way. And I understand why, because when you, when you are someone who has a vision, if I could sound a little bit pretentious for a moment, and you have, you have this kind of control freak mentality, it's not like you're trying to upset people, but you just can't delegate very easily. And you're trying to get to this end result, and and only you know what it sounds like in your head. And if you if you're someone as Ian was and I was in in my band, if you write all the material, you want your baby to be born exactly the way you imagined it was supposed to be born. And and that's again that's something that rubs people up the wrong way when they're essentially in a band with you. And I think that's I think that's one of the myths about bands actually is that bands the best bands usually aren't bands at all. They're they're kind of uh, benign dictatorships or not benign you know just dictatorships and if you look at bands you know one of my heroes Pete Townsend you know and The Who is a great example of a benign dictatorship you know so it's not really a band I mean it is a band in the sense that everyone has their own musical personality Mm -hmm. but clearly there's someone there that's calling all the shots it's not a democracy and I don't think you can have a band that is a a democracy Uh, there's always an exception that proves the rule but generally speaking, Rush, for example, would yeah. be the, Rush would be the example that, that proves the rule. They are the exception. I think most bands are run. There's one guy there that's calling all the shots, and that's Ian, and that's me. And so we have this kind of in common, and I think we get on pretty well because of that. A perfect segue into uh, you have a song on the 40th anniversary 2112 Rush release. How did that happen? Well, they asked me. I mean, you know, uh, I've known I've known the, those guys for a long time now. Uh, Alex played on um, I forget which album he played Fear of Blank Planet Fear of Blank Planet he played on 10 years ago and uh, uh, so they asked me and you know and 
it's it, again, you know, s- similar to what I was saying before about remixing these classics. It's kind of slightly daunting when you take on something that is uh, so beloved and so familiar to to so many people, and you're going to do your version of it. And, and, and I did, no, I did a pretty faithful version of it, but. Um, I wasn't going to say no, you know. I mean, this is it, you know. So when someone asks you, you know, when Rush asks you if you if you want to contribute to their twenty twenty one twelve projects, it's like, wow, that's that could go either way, you know. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to say no, you know. Uh, so and they and they were really happy, and that's you know, at the end of the day, the important thing is that they were pleased with what we did and, and what I did. So I guess we'll find out what the fans make of it. Are you sad like the rest of us that Rush seems to be done at least for now? No, because I understand, you know, honestly, I think they had done what they were supposed to do. You know, I think part of me has uh, an understanding because it's the fans' prerogative to be nostalgic about, about things. It's not the artist's prerogative to be nostalgic. In fact, I think one of the worst things you can be as an artist is nostalgic. There are so many bands that reformed and carried on going way past the point they, they the really, sh- they really should have said no. We've done what we were supposed to do. We should stop now, and I think that's a really noble thing to do. Um, and you know, it's pa- Neil. It's painful for him to play now. So why, you know? And obviously, Rush is not going to replace Neil Peart. So uh, I think it. I think it's a very noble thing to do. They have an extraordinary back catalogue that will always be there. And speaking of concert videos, I don't think anybody has any more. What's that second? Uh, I think they have more concert videos than just about anybody. Them and Iron Maiden. <laughs> right. I mean, they're, they're, they're an example of a band that have put out a lot of... I mean, I've lost track. They've put out about three or four over the last ten years. But then, to be fair, with their, in their case, they've kind of wound down the studio, the writing and, and production of new studio recordings. So um, I guess it makes sense more for them to, to be doing the live DVDs now. But... Um, I haven't seen any of them, but, but you know, I mean, it, it's, it, I guess it's like a souvenir of that will be... Well, I say that will be their legacy. Actually, I don't think that's true. I think their legacy will still be the classic studio records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's next for you? You have a Blackfield album that's been... Uh, I think it's coming out in February. There's a Blackfield album coming out, which I've... I mean, it's, to be fair, it's still not really my album. It's Aviv's, right. you know, album. But I've got a lot more involved with this one than I have been for a long time. I did write one song for it, and I, I helped Aviv on a couple of others, and I played guitars and I sang quite a lot on it, and I mixed a few of the tracks. So Alan Parsons did a few tracks with him too, and it's a, I have to say it's a really good record. It's a really good record. It's, it's 13 short, quality, classic pop songs, and, and uh, I'm really proud of it. And uh, No, but the main thing for me is two weeks after I get back from India I start recording the week before Christmas I start recording my next record so that's exciting won't ask anything we like the surprise Uh, yeah I mean I'm very excited about the material all I'll say is it's different again it's very different again I don't like to repeat myself I like to feel like I'm always you know evolving as an artist it is very different and uh, it's going to come out September next year have you been writing on the road? I can't write on the road, but I've been writing since last Christmas. I started writing just before Christmas last December. I did a burst of writing first few months of last year, of this year, and I did another burst of writing over the summer this year, and I have about 17 songs 
which is a lot. But I always like to have a lot more songs than I need, and I record them all, and then I choose the ones that make the most sense in terms of flow and, and you know, conceptually fit together. So I've got 17 new songs to record. I'm very excited about them. I'm very excited to record with my with my new band, and um, we'll see. Yeah, can't wait to hear them playing tonight. Not going to be playing anything tonight from the new record. Of course the not. Record, <laughs> but the new guys are going to be playing. Yes, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. One um, of my friends asked, do you remember the first lyric that you ever wrote and would you share even a snippet of it? Oh, no, I don't. <laughs> no, I mean, it, was prob- it was probably something I wrote when I was in, you know, you know, I don't know, nursery school or something. I'm not sure. I think I always, I think I always had aspirations to be some kind of artiste poet filmmaker songwriter whatever painter uh, I was probably doodling things when I was you know very very small no I don't remember sorry which is probably just as well really there was a lot of talk around Deadwing about movies and a script and everything have you wanted to do more in movies yeah I mean I would love to make a movie Dead, the Deadwing script was something that we tried to get off the ground we're going we're going back over 10 years now and even 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 at that point, it was still very hard to get a movie project off the ground. You still needed a, even a low-budget movie. You still needed to find a million dollars from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think things have changed a lot now. If we'd written that script now, we could have gone out with some iPhones. Yeah. We could have gone out with iPhones and made it. You know, That's how much the world has changed in the 10 years since we did that script. But we both, myself and Mike Banyan, the guy who wrote it, we, we both went back and reread it a couple of years ago to see if we still wanted to make it, and we both sort of decided, no, if we were going to do something now, we'd do something different. So that's possible. It's time. It's time for me. You're known as one of the busiest guys uh, in the music industry. When do you have time to, like, uh, just sit back and play with the dog? Well, that's a problem, and that's why I'm kind of stopping to do a lot of the stuff that historically I've done. So I'm kind of stopped doing the remix work now because it's just taking up so much time. And I want to focus. I really want to focus because I'm in a, I feel like I'm in, a, in some ways, I've, and I'm sure there are fans who disagree, but I feel I'm in the best creative period of my entire career. And I want to focus now because one of the things I have been accused of, perhaps legitimately, is spreading myself thinly between too many different things. And there was a time you know, 10 years ago when in a year there would be a Porcupine Tree album, a No Man album, a Blackfield album, a Bass Community album, some remixes. And and it was true that perhaps that not all of them were as good as they should and could have been. So I don't want to be accused of that anymore. So, <laughs> which is why, you know, I kind of drew a line under everything, you know, and I said, okay, from now on, I'm a solo artist. This is what I do. And of course, I'll get involved in the occasional Blackfield project, but that most of that is Aviv's writing um, and I still like to collaborate but I, th- I feel now that I would like to have some time to myself as well one of the things that's good is I work from home so my studio's at home so I do get to play with my little doggy you know <laughs> she wanders into the studio when I'm working you know so she de- you know like all little pets she demands attention like all little like all little babies when she wants attention she gets it so uh, which is good. It's kind of like a leveler, isn't it? It's like you know, you stops you getting into this, you know, artistic space where ooh, I'm t- and she just wants to get in your lap. Obsessed <laughs> with my, obsessed with my with my masterwork. You know, she, when she wants attention, she wants to get on my lap. Yeah, which is good. <laughs> Breaks me out of my reverie. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. I know you have another interview scheduled, and you've got a show to play tonight. But ooh, yeah. I say for a lot of fans, thank you very much for the music. Keep doing what you're doing. 
Thank you very much. Can't do anything else, so I better keep doing it. Thanks a lot. <laughs>